welcome to another episode of the Beef Bits Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeff Limcooler, Extension Beef Cattle Specialist at the University of Kentucky. Through the Beef Bits Podcast, we will share current news, management tips, new research, and other issues related to beef cattle production. I'll be joined by various guests to bring different views and insights on beef cattle topics. I hope you will follow or subscribe to the Beef Bits Podcast and find the information useful. Welcome to another episode of the Beef Bits Podcast. I'm Jeff Limpcooler, Extension Beef Specialist at the University of Kentucky, and today I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Greg Renfro. Greg is an Extension Meat Specialist. He a uh, former meat cutter and so has a lot of experience on the meat side of things. Greg, how are you today? We're doing good. It's a... Uh, Seems to be a nice day, just waiting for the rain to arrive. So, uh, but other than that, it's pretty good. Yeah, it looks like they're suggesting some areas of the state could get up to five inches with this hurricane blowing through. Oh yeah, and I usually, uh, you know, you know, we've known each other for a while. You know, I'm a big NASCAR fan. They've been trying to have that race down in Texas for the last three days, and I don't know if there's hurricane coming in there. You know, it could kind of skirt Dallas so we may not get a race in at all this week <laughs> you know I, you don't think about those things but yeah and if they don't get that one in um, gosh could they get it to, they, they probably can't even get it in at all this season yeah it, well and it's funny because it is a uh, it's a playoff race so there's actually including the Texas race Martinsville and Phoenix and Phoenix is a championship race so it's one of those where you kind of have to have it because it's going to set up the four that are going to drive for a championship. So I'd, I'd hate to be folks in NASCAR right now. Let's put it that way. I would be too. Yes. Especially when you got those kind of teams that are uh, bidding for spots in that uh, yeah. championship race. Yep. Well, today I thought uh, we'd take a little bit of time and, and cover some questions that are maybe common now in light of, of COVID and folks yeah. that are buying beef and getting it butchered locally. So um, uh, I thought this would be a good time to catch up on some of these maybe common questions that you probably get uh, from people. Yeah. First one, maybe I thought we would just kind of put this all in context of some things you might want to ask your butcher when you're going to get a beef and then, um, maybe we could start off with some of the things that you would recommend folks to look at or think about when they're picking a, a butcher or a processor to have a beef processed. Yeah, well, and, and you're, you're right. I mean, this year, I mean, 2020 is 2020. I don't know how else to put it. And and uh, we've experienced a lot this, this year. And it seems to be that folks are getting more interested in, you know, local meat processors, local meat in general, and being Kentucky is a predominantly a beef state when it comes to our protein of choice. Uh, you know, obviously when you when you start looking at a processor, whether you're you're a farmer looking to take your your cattle to a processor for either yourself or your own family or you're selling freezer beef or whatnot, you know, location's always going to be, you know, the, the major driver of everything. You know, if, if you have a meat processor that's close by, you know, that's usually the ones you look at first. 
And then you got to ask yourself, what exactly are you wanting? Or if you're a farmer, if you're a bee farmer and you want to, you know, kind of promote your farm and be involved in this local food movement and so on, and you want to sell meat, you know, sell beef from your cattle, you know, then you're looking at a USDA inspected processor. And, you know, that, that can be a little bit of a challenge, you know, to find a USDA processor. Uh, we've got over 100 meat processors in the state, but only about uh, 40 of them or so are uh, inspected uh, facilities. But if you're just looking for one, uh, you know, to, to fill your, uh, your freezer up or your sell, you know, freezer beef or you sell the animal to customer A and, and they have it processed, you know, uh, then you kind of open to what you, you know, again, what's local. I mean, if you, you know, if you don't mind driving a few hours, you know, which, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, for me, when I look at a map and somebody calls me and, and they say, well, who's around me? And I tell them and, and, uh, you know, I've drove those distances before and it may be 45 minutes for me in a, in just a regular vehicle where you're hauling, you know, cattle or, you know, have a trailer behind you might as well double that in some cases, so, you know, obviously location is a big thing, but I would encourage folks to kind of visit the facility ahead of time. You know, anybody that comes through this, that's one thing we always tell them is, is try to get out there and visit the processor first, you know, walk in the facility, you know, does it smell like a regular meat processing facility? I mean, it, meat processing facilities have their own odor make sure it smells like a normal meat processing facility. If it has, you know, foul pungent odors, that could be an indication of some sanitation issues, which you trust me, you don't want any part of, um, you know, does somebody greet you? Do they, do they seem like they're willing with you on this kind of stuff as well? And those are the big issues that I would look for. Um, you know, folks that do the farmer's markets or the roadside stands and selling beef off their farm, you know, what ends up happening, and we've seen this a lot of times, is folks folks are working with a processor and things are going well, then there obviously is going to be a hiccup. You know, anytime you have a relationship with somebody, there's always going to be challenges. You know, you and I have been married a long time. I think you'd agree with that, you know, or with our wives. But sometimes there's challenges that pop up and, and you know, folks would do this kind of stuff. They get a little antsy and they say, well, it's a free market system. I'm going to switch meat processors. Well, when you start doing that kind of stuff, it becomes really an issue. And now you got to start all over. And so I always tell folks, you know, try to hash it out, you know, sit down and have a cup of coffee and try to figure out, you know, what they're, where they're coming from and have them figure out where you're coming from, hopefully meet in the middle. So there's things that can think about when you start to look for a processor, you know, nowadays just finding a processor is a, uh, is a uh, is a challenge because everybody is book solid because of this pandemic. Those are good points, and if you found somebody that um, you could get into and you build that relationship, then you maybe are able to get maybe more preference when it comes to rebooking or booking another animal, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, they're they're just like any other business. They're looking for consistency in business. They want repeat customers and you know, they're going to do what they can to make you happy so that you come back. Uh, and when you have that, you know, they're more likely to give you the spots that they have open. You know, if you say, okay, I'm going to dedicate X number of animals per month or X number of animals every three months or something like that, 
Yeah, you're, you're sometimes you will get a little bit of preferential treatment because they know they can count on you and you're an established customer. So if you're thinking about some of these expenses, uh, too, and you're looking at the amount of money that we might be thinking about, uh, you've got the animal that you're taking in and mm-hmm. there's a expense there. Uh, is there anything, you know, you mentioned about walking in, yep. but is there anything about um, if some of us maybe are working off the farm and, and uh, are a lot of their facilities going to be able to allow you to hold an animal overnight if you needed to drop it an evening before. And, and maybe some of those things too, just walking around and looking at the outside facilities too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that that's one of the things, you know, when I, when I do work with, with, those that are wanting to open up their own facility, you know, one of the first things we, we talk about other than just the, the basics of the business is when you design these facilities, and I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there, uh, is, is look at the outside of the facility as well, especially the animal handling part. Um, you know, sadly, that usually is the last thing people think about when they're building a facility is the holding pens and how they're going to move animals from the holding pens into the, uh, into the facility. And it really should be one of the first things you start to think about. I I can tell you and cite you several different situations where folks last thing they thought about, and they ended up having some major issues. And one that comes to mind was a processor that, we talked about, you know, maybe you should think about your holding pens because we were standing in the back of where the facility was going to be. You know, it was kind of a, the virtual kind of thinking through things. And and I could just see in my mind's eye, judging by the where the sun was, that in the morning they were going to try to move those animals towards the sun, which, you know, they don't like bright lights in their face. You know, that's one thing to consider. And, and uh, you know, is the facilities able to handle animals that you're wanting you know you 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 mentioned bringing animals in the night before Uh, some places allow you to do that others don't because of usda regulations because you know if they're there a certain amount of time they got to be fed and so a lot of processors don't want to do that kind of stuff but yeah you're absolutely right i mean think about that animal handling stuff not only you know for the humane handling but we know that not only stress has adverse effects on the human body, but it does the same thing for animals as well. It has adverse effects on them. The difference is we're going to turn them into food. And so now we're talking about meat quality issues. And if you have a, a improperly designed facility and you see those guys out there kind of cowboying animals to get them in, you know, that's a, you know, that can be some, some problems, you know, um, with quality issues, bruises and, uh, you know, we, you know, maybe dark cutters and so on, that, those type of things that are all stress-induced uh, situations that, it, again, if you're doing the farmer's market, roadside stand type, type stuff, those are obviously issues you don't want to deal with. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and that's even more important today as we think about folks wanting to know more about their, their meat, where it comes from, and, and how it got from uh, basically uh, – uh, point A to their plate, yep. all those steps in between become more and more important. Yeah, it does. You know, and, and that's the that's the thing is, is, you know, not only humane handling, but, you know, a processor can get shut down with improper handling as well. And so, you know, we need to be cognizant of that, you know, look at those facilities. But you're absolutely right. P- 
people are getting more and more interested in where their food comes from. I think our generation, you and I are Gen Xers, you know, we, we just, you know, you and I kind of come from ag backgrounds, you know, farm related backgrounds. And so we just kind of naturally knew where food come came from. And, and I think our generation kind of understood, uh, you know, where food comes from, but you know, these millennials and generation Z, you know, we're looking at generations that, uh, you know, that probably have a very weak grasp on where their food comes from. And so they're interested in that kind of stuff. And plus when they're, when they're buying local, they want to be able to tell whoever's at their dinner party that we bought this and it came from a local farm here in the county. Their kids are involved in 4-H and FFA. They want to tell that story. And so a lot of times I tell folks, you know, when you're starting out to do this local processing and local sales of your of your product, a lot of farmers get so wrapped up in the quality and so on. I said, well, you know, I understand where you come from. You know, do think about quality, but also think about telling your story. Because in reality, those folks that are buying this stuff, that's what they're wanting. They're wanting the story. And if you can, if you're a good storyteller, you can tell, you know, a story about you and your farm and your family's farm and all that. That's what they're really into. And that's what they really want to know that, hey, this farm came from here. This animal came from here. And we know the story. And they really, consumers nowadays really like that kind of stuff. That's yeah, that is a trend that is ever growing, I would think, as we look at the buyer's preferences. And I think that will probably continue to evolve and, and get more uh, more attention. And, and we'll need to do a better job of trying to tell that story a little bit better. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, thinking bigger picture, you know, uh, there's so many misconceptions about agriculture in general. It seems like those of us in animal agriculture, we, we tend to have more of those misconceptions thrown on us that that uh, folks have about us. And, and, you know, especially when it comes to animal welfare and animal handling, you know, you can go on YouTube or any kind of Internet, you know, search engine and find examples of people that are mishandling animals. And it gets painted as that's the industry standard. And I don't know about you, Jeff, but it seems like the people I've ran into that have those situations, they tend to want to close the farm gates and keep people out, which in reality, maybe we should open the farm gates and just show them what's happening in your average American farm and show people that what you see on the Internet is an extremely small percentage and maybe maybe even a decimal place of a percentage of incidents that happen that that 99.9 percent of farmers are humane handlers of their animals, they're caretakers of the environment. And you open those doors up and you let them see things and explain why you do the things that you do, you know, and and be able to show people that we are, you know, caretakers of the animal, caretakers of the land and so on and so forth. So that far, uh, consumers understand that, you know, so that they don't just go on the internet and find whatever video or, you know, something like that that shows you know, improper, whatever, and just naturally assume that's the way the industry is when in reality it's not. That's right. There's, there's not enough of the videos of uh, farmers bringing calves in in the middle of the winter into their house and warming them up in the bathtubs and, and those types of things that, uh, you know, they realize that animal well-being, animal health is a main profit driver for their operations. So they do 
uh, as much as they can to try and keep animals healthy and in good environments so that their performance is good. Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember, you know, and it's something both a guy both of us know that's probably one of the, the, the biggest advocates for agriculture we have is Trent Luce. I remember him posting a picture one time in his farm in Nebraska in the middle of a blizzard. And, you know, he's got that big kind of bushy mustache and it was just frozen solid, you know, and you, he was doing exactly what you're talking about out there in the weather, taking care of his animals you know, we can't always predict when calves are going to come. And so you're, you're right. People bring them inside so that, uh, you know, they, they survive. And, and, and I think folks need to understand that that's what the average farmer does. What, what was that old, uh, uh, you know, poem, I guess, I forget who did it during the Super Bowl that said, you know, so God made a farmer and, you know, and that's exactly what it is. These guys are bending over backwards to make sure that, uh, we treat animals humanely and that you as the consumer not only have an animal, you know, meat from an animal that was treat, treated humanely, that it was put there by somebody who cared. Uh, it was Paul Harvey that. There that, you go. Uh, yeah. 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 This has been a great discussion, uh, Greg. And, and let's uh, jump back into some of the discussion we were thinking about on selecting a processor. We talked about looking at facilities and, and going down and meeting with the butcher mm -hmm. and, and having some conversation with them. But maybe there's some things we can do before we get to that point. And you mentioned inspections. So what's the difference between custom and USDA inspection that we might think about as it relates to getting our beef processed? Absolutely. You know, uh, USDA inspection, by law, all meat has to have been inspected prior to sale. I believe the actual verbiage in the uh, in Title IX of the Code of the Federal Re Regulation states that it has to, you know, has to be inspected prior to interstate commerce, you know. And that is, you know, we could we could spend probably two podcasts just talking about what inspection does. But in reality, it's designed to make sure that you're consuming a wholesome product. All right. And so USDA inspected facilities are allowed to sell to the public, whereas custom processors are individuals that are going to take your animal, process it for you and it's intended for you and your family's consumption and they will they will stamp all your packages not for sale and so you know basically in gist if you if you have a custom processed animal and you sell 10 pounds of ground beef to your neighbor yeah technically you have uh broken the law uh so you need to make sure that you you're working with a usda inspected facility and so that, you know, and, and be honest with you, uh, we've had this discussion with farmers in the past is, is yeah, I, I get it. It can be a little bit more of a challenge working with, with USDA. But in reality, it might be something you really want to have happen, even for your own personal animals, is, is it gives you a layer of protection, so to speak. We can't necessarily guarantee that everything is going to be pathogen free. I guarantee if I could do that, you'd be talking to somebody else because I'd be off having lunch with Bill Gates or something like that. If I could figure out how to make everything pathogen free and nobody would ever get sick from eating food again, but it gives you that layer of protection. And I, I can guarantee you that as litigious as our society is, that if you're doing something and you didn't have that layer of protection with the government, that, you know, you're almost out to dry when it comes from a legal standpoint. 
But that doesn't mean, for instance, that um, um, it that a facility or a processor or butcher shop is not going to be any less clean than a USDA yeah. when if they're custom. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because uh, even the uh, custom processors, they still have to register with the USDA, and an, a USDA inspector will visit them from time to time. Usually, it's about once a quarter or once every other quarter that they'll visit them. They also fall, fall under the watchful eye of the, of the uh, state health department. So they're visited as well. And so again, even if, even if you're concerned about that custom processor, go and visit, you know, again, you know, the nose test is, is a good one. You know, if you, if it doesn't smell like a typical meat processing facility, maybe it's something that you, you don't want to get into. Look at the parking lot. You know, does do they care how the parking lot looks? Do they care how clean the foyer of the uh, the uh, business is? My wife gets frustrated with me when we go to a restaurant sometimes, and I'll we'll walk in the restaurant and the foyer of the restaurant is not clean. I usually turn around and leave, and she's why are we leave. I said, well, if they don't care about what I can see looks like, then what do they what do they care about the stuff that I can't see? you know, like the kitchen and so on and so forth. So just little things that you can do for yourself as well. And, and yeah, another good tip, you know, when you're working with USDA guys and you're wanting to do this farmer's market roadside stand type stuff is look and see what their cuts look like, because that's exactly what you're going to get back. And is that something you want to put your name on? That's a great point. And and so if I'm I'm looking at a, a processor as an example, and, and I notice that their custom fee for processing um, is $35, let's say, but USDA uh, kill fee is $50. And then I notice their price per hanging uh, is say 10 cents a pound higher for that USDA. What's what's driving that cost differential? Yeah. And you, you see that with a lot of processors and that's come up in several discussions, even, even at the state government level. And uh, because technically our tax dollars pay for inspection, you know, USDA inspection, it's a mandatory process. And so we don't have to worry about when the government shuts down that USDA inspection is going to shut down because it's going to continue to, to, to go. What a lot of folks do and they charge you more for that is because they have to do a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of paperwork that goes along with you being USDA some of these bigger facilities that we have in the state that are USDA, they have somebody solely dedicated to all the paperwork, you know, that goes along with USDA, which includes SSOPs, which are sanitary standard operating procedures. So basically what that is, is it spells out how we're going to clean this piece of equipment. This is the, the stuff we're going to use to clean it. You know, this is how you take it apart. This is how you put it back together. It spells that out. And plus, it also uh, has what we call the pre-op sanitation. So before we begin the day with USDA inspection, we got to do that pre-op. So you got to go through the, the entire plant and do an inspection to make sure that the folks that cleaned up the afternoon before or the evening before did a proper job to make sure that there's no kind of filth or dirt on the on those uh, uh, the equipment and so on. Then you get into HACCP, which stands for Hazard Analysis and Critical Control Points. And basically, that forces a processor to identify areas where contamination can occur and then address those areas about how you're going to prevent that or reduce it or bring it under control. 
And so that's basically what you get in there when you get in USDA is a lot of times they're charging you more because they have to do a lot more paperwork on those animals to get them to you. So is it true that uh, if you're having a USDA uh, process on an animal that inspector is also there at the time that the meat is cut up? Yeah, he's there for uh, he's there the entire time during the uh, on the uh, on the kill floor. He's there the entire time. Um, he may be poking in and out of the facility when you're doing when you're processing the the carcass or the ground beef or whatnot. Uh, sometimes they'll, they'll be there the entire time for that as well, or they'll be on facility the entire time as well. So they're always readily available uh, when when you're doing USDA. So then there's this discussion that has come up here recently, too, about USDA versus state inspection. Mm-hmm. You mentioned with the custom processors that we're still registering, and then you have um, maybe the health department oversight. But is there a difference between custom and state inspection? Yeah, state inspection, uh, no, you know, no, no, in all full disclosure, we we in in, uh, in Kentucky, we don't have a state inspection service. Uh, most of the states around us, minus Tennessee, do have a state inspection service. That was uh, part of some legislation that happened back in the uh, in the '60s, and basically, state inspection is has to be equal to or better than federal inspection. And some folks might think, well, why would you have state inspection if it has to be at least equal to or better? And what ends up happening is it's it goes back to this amenable species thing where our tax dollars pay for USDA inspection on amenable species. But there are some some animals out there that if we want those inspected by the USDA, we have to pay. They're not what we they're called non-amenable species. The one and the classic example that comes to mind is buffalo, buffalo or bison, whatever you want to call them. USDA does not recognize them. However, like where you and I went to grad school at in Missouri, Missouri State Inspection, they recognize buffalo as an amenable species. And so if you're state inspected and you're you're processing buffalo, then they will pay. Then you don't have to pay for that. But if you are federally inspected and you want to process buffalo, you have to pay for that. And so that's kind of the reason why some folks would want to go U.S. go state inspection versus USDA. Here in Kentucky, just a little bit of history. We had a state inspection service when when the law was changed, where we could allow to have a state inspection service. We had one, but then that that budget acts of the uh, mid to late seventies killed that. And so we no longer have that. And so if you're an inspected facility here in Kentucky, it's USDA. And I believe, you know, when I was at Wisconsin, Wisconsin had several state inspected plants. And the other limitation was that it was for intrastate or within the state sales, not interstate would be sales between states. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's the, the main drawback of, of state inspection is the actual physical sale of the product has to stay within said state. So like where you're talking about Wisconsin, it has to be sold within Wisconsin. Now, does that mean you and I from maybe Illinois could cross the border and buy something, bring it back? Absolutely. You could do that. But that physical sale has to happen right there in, uh, in, 
in the state to wherever that state inspection service is. Now, where I see some challenges is you have processes that are close to borders. And uh, that can be an issue. Like, uh, for example, I got this phone call. Somebody said, hey, I can get I, I found a facility in Ohio that's inspected. Can I get my animals processed there? And the first thing that came to mind is that exactly what you brought up was, are they federally inspected or state inspected? And they said, well, I think they're state inspected. I said, well, it's not going to do you any good because you can't legally sell that in Kentucky. It has to be sold within Ohio. So a lot of things when it comes to selecting a, the processor and the butcher really results right back to what you initially talked about and is how are you going to sell it if you're going to sell it by packages and, and boxes, then you probably need to be USDA inspected. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's not a decision you need to run into, uh, you know, just willy nilly. Um it sounds really attractive right now because we've gotten into, I, I hesitate to say this, but I don't know how else to describe it, a little bit of food insecurity. I mean, we're more secure now than we were at the beginning of the pandemic when we saw these little hiccups in local grocery stores when it came to meat supply. But it, it seems to be very attractive right now and somewhat lucrative. But I often ask folks, you, you've got to sit down and kind of figure out what your goals are. If you're really wanting to do this, what are your goals? You know, and they said, what do you mean? I, well, I say, what are your goals? Are you wanting to be just somebody who sells to a few people on weekends? Or are you wanting to make this into a bigger uh, proposition? Because what your goals are going to determine how much extra work you're going to do. You know, I, uh, I've worked with a few of them that got into this said, man, I didn't realize that this was going to be uh, uh, as much work as it was going to be. I thought it was just going to be simply as as people were going to call me up and they were going to come out to the farm and buy whatever I had. He says, this has turned into another full-time job. And so you need to think about that kind of stuff as well. What, what do you want out of it? You know, because it, it, that, that's going to dictate how much work you're going to have to do extra on top of farmer. <laughs> yeah, that's really a great way to look at that. And, um, you know, I... I had uh, a beef that I got back here um, oh, a few weeks ago, and mine was done, you know, to custom because, uh, you know, I didn't intend to sell it, and it was just coming back home to yep. to feed the family. And, you know, there's there was no reason per se for me to do USDA inspected because that meat was going home in my freezer. Yep, absolutely. And that's what we see a lot of farmers do. And, 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 and that was kind of causing a little bit of the bottleneck is – is the one thing that I think the pandemic showed us, there's a couple things that it showed us. Number one, that I think the lesson we learned when this is all said and done, when this pandemic is over with, and we, we sit down and as Tony Soprano said, the lowest form of conversation, it starts with remember when. And we sit back and we talk about remember when the pandemic happened. I think the one thing we've learned is that if you don't feel good and you're sick, it's probably not best to go to work where a lot of us did that anyway but prior to that. But the other thing it showed us is from a food standpoint and from basically from an animal agriculture and meat uh, standpoint, we do have a big Achilles tendon when it comes to our Achilles heel, when it comes to processing in this country, that we have these big facilities that process several animals, hundreds of animals per hour, you know, 16 hours plus a day, you know, five or six days a week. 
And that works out well when everything's running smooth. And I think those of us in extension have done a wonderful job of teaching our farmers how to get these animals to the weight they need to be in as, as quick as possible. So essentially we created, to go back to the NASCAR example, we created animals to be these NASCARs that they were going to grow quickly and fast. But then all of a sudden the virus hit a lot of these major packing plants and created a huge backlog, a huge bottleneck that I don't think anybody ever foreseen happening. You know, we, I've, I've had this discussion with several people I think everybody kind of thought we were medically, technologically too advanced to have a pandemic and then look at what happened. And I think, you know, the one good thing is, is we're now addressing those issues so that when this does happen again, that we're able to kind of roll with the punches and maintain the uh, supply chain as we see it. Yeah, that's a really good uh, point. And we, we forget about that sometimes that, these are unforeseen events. It's like the hundred year flood, if you yeah. will. It's you don't necessarily uh, expect that to come every five years, but yeah, uh, you know we're we're in a new new era right now, and it's really opened our eyes to a lot of different things. Oh yeah, I, I remember sending people to you that they were talking about. What am I going to do with these animals? How do I slow them down? You know, and I said, well, <laughs> talk to Dr. Limcooler. He can help you out because there's nothing I can do. <laughs> so. it's, yeah. So, um, you know, we, we talked about uh, some of these differences. And, um, you know, if you're if you're sitting here and you're wanting to get some other kind of ideas on what the cost and that might be to help you make a decision, mm-hmm. there are also probably some costs that will um, be involved on processing and they'll price that out like on a per pound, a hanging weight. So tell us a little bit about what exactly that is on, we talk about hanging weight. What, what does that mean? Yeah, that's basically, uh, the carcass that comes from your animals. You know, we talk about the difference between the live weight and the carcass weight. We call that a dressing percentage. Cattle normally will have a dressing percentage around 60%. There's a lot of things that can affect that, especially this time of year. Well, we, we did some cattle that come off of our farms here, you know, off our UK farms in class uh, uh, last week. And it was wet outside. They kind of hit here when it was raining. And they'd been out you know, outside and they were covered in mud and manure. Well, when we weighed those animals, that weight went into the live weight, but it doesn't go into the carcass weight. So that affects that dressing percentage. And so you stop and think about those differences there. You know, you start there with a 1,200-pound animal. Now you're down to a 600-pound carcass. And so that's that dressing percentage that's going to play into that as well. And then you have to also consider that that carcass is about 70 to 75% water. And we're putting it into a cooler that has a breeze, a slight breeze going through there to cool that carcass down as quickly as possible. And you can get three to 5% loss in the first 24 hours just due to evaporative cooling. You know, in the bourbon industry, they call that the angel share. We don't have a cool name like that in the meats industry. We just call it cooler shrink. And so you you get this difference between the hot carcass weight and if the facility has a cold carcass weight, you'll see those those differences there. And so you need to kind of, uh, you know, 
visit with your processor to find out is he charging you on the hot carcass weight or the cold carcass weight when it comes to processing fees. I, my venture say probably 95% of them are doing a hot carcass weight. And so if you are selling freezer beef, that's something that you need to visit with your customers on and say, okay, this is what's going to happen. You know, this is how this is going to work because for some weird reason that that person who's let's say they're buying the carcass off a side of beef and it's 350 pounds. That's what they expect is going to come back to them. When in reality, they're only going to get about 30% or maybe I shouldn't say 30, probably about 45 to 50% of that 300 and some odd pounds back. That's going to go in the freezer because we got cutting loss and so on and so forth. And then a lot of that's going to be ground beef as well. That's a really good point. And so, you know, you mentioned that cooler shrink mm-hmm. and um, as you think about the differences then too on hang time in the cooler. So in some instances, oh, yeah. they may be in the cooler for a week and some will be two weeks. Yep. Um, there'll be changes in, in what you will get back from that standpoint as well, correct? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I, I didn't go down that avenue, but yeah, if, you know, beef, we like to age beef, you know, and what happens during the aging process is even though we consider that a deceased animal, I don't know how else to describe it, there's still enzymatic processes that are going on inside there that are breaking down the connective tissue, breaking down the proteins, and it's making that product more tender. And so meat processors will age sometimes according to whatever cooler space they have. And what I mean by that is, is I've worked with meat processors in probably half the states in this union, and I've never had one tell me they've got too much cooler or too much freezer. They usually say, I need more freezer, need more cooler. And so they're trying to turn those coolers over as fast as they can. And so your product may only be in there for seven to 10 days. Others will look at it and say, okay, you brought me an animal. I'm looking at it. He doesn't have a whole lot of fat on him. So we probably need to process him within three to five days because if he doesn't have much fat on him, that means he's more susceptible to shrink. He's more susceptible to dehydrated surface that I have to carve off. I often joke, you know, I could take the cold a lot better when I weighed 380 pounds. Now that I weigh 210 pounds, the cold bothers me a lot more. And it's kind of the same thing with the carcasses, a fatter carcass you know, we're talking about fatter carcass being over, you know, maybe six tenths of an inch of fat on there. They can go in there for two weeks to three weeks to hang, you know, if you can get a processor to allow it to stay in there for three weeks. Because usually they just, they want to turn those those uh, those coolers over as quick as they can. And you got to realize if you do get them to talk in to go in a three-week time, there's going to be a lot of that dehydrated surface that's going to have to be carved off of there and again, that's going to reduce your yield even more. Good, good thing to consider there. We we forget about that sometime. And as we have seen people that have started into the direct sales, a lot of times the animals that they might be selling early on are really not carrying an excessive amount of, of subcutaneous yeah. fat or that fat that's right underneath the hide. And so they are at a greater risk of some potential impacts on greater shrink and, and maybe cold shortening, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we've got a 
we've got to let those carcasses go in the rigor and uh, you know it's sometimes even though we let them go in the rigor which usually happens in the first 12 hours or so of post-mortem uh sometimes when they don't have a whole lot of fat uh the outside of those guys will cool off so fast that the those that part can go into rigor and we had a classic example of that downstairs with those cattle from last week and it was really kind of cool when something like that shows up from a teaching standpoint it wasn't very good from a meat quality standpoint but it was really cool for me to show the class we call it a heat ring and it has a little bit of a different uh, color and texture on the a situation where those uh that that carcass cooled down too quickly and that that outer area didn't get a chance to go into rigor so from you say why is it a problem in meat quality standpoint because when you cut that up and you start to cook it guess what that outer part of that muscle is going to try to do it's going to try to go back into rigor making that that outer part a little bit tougher so i think that uh, you know that is one of those um overlooked pieces of the puzzle when we start looking at all right i took a 1100 animal 1100 pound animal in and i got 300 pounds of meat back yep. we forget about the shrink loss we forget about the the bone yep. loss yep and a lot of people may not want for instance, the kidneys, they may not want the heart, they may not want the liver. Yep, absolutely. And th those are components that are weighed with the carcass. Um, yeah. Uh, maybe depending on how they, you know, some processors take the kidneys and the kidney fat out right away. Others will leave them in. So so all these things may change a little bit on what your uh, weights are going to be when you take home product. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I usually tell folks, you're going to take home about 30 to 35% of that live weight. And there's so much that goes into it. Like you said, if you want everything boneless, you know, that's about 20% of the carcass weight right there. So, so we, we, if we started out at that 11, 1200 pound animal, then we get into a 600 pound carcass and then we want everything boneless. You can see how those numbers dive down there real quick. And one thing you mentioned is the, is the kidney fat. You know, sometimes, you know, the, the average, you know, percentage of kidney, heart, and pelvic fat in a carcass is around 2% of that carcass weight. And so, again, that gets peeled off and thrown away. And people say, well, why do they leave it in there if it's so significant in, in, uh, in uh, uh, weight? Well, the reason why they, they leave it in there a lot of places because it, it sits right over that tenderloin or that filet mignon, and it protects that guy from drying out. So the most valuable part in the carcass, it protects it from drying out so that we have more of a yield on that as well. And I could uh, I could write a book on the I've gotten over the years on exactly what you're talking about. You know, my favorite one was the gal said, I understand all that, but I just want everything in ribeyes. <laughs> well, we're working on that. <laughs> we're working on that. Or one time I said, I understand, but why did I get so much ground beef? Well, that's that's the nature of it, you know, as, as well as you you have one process yourself. I venture to say you had a significant proportion of that guy as ground beef. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Beef Bits podcast. Dr. Renfro and I had some great discussion on considerations that you might think about when selecting a processor for your beef, as well as many other things. Unfortunately, I had an internet drop and uh, 
We'll pick up our discussion uh, next week, but it was also at a pretty good natural break. So we'll have the second part of our discussion with regards to things to consider when choosing a processor uh, next week. So thank you for tuning in to this week's Beef Bits podcast. I'm Dr. Jeff Lemkuler, your host, and we look forward to your feedback. Thank you again.